everybody, and welcome to Shop Talk. We are coming to you live via Facebook today, and then in the future, pre-recorded uh, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, I'm Nicole Lossie, and today we have a really special episode in store. Joining me to moderate today are Zach Flock, the Drama Shop Artistic Director. Hello, Zach. Greetings. <laughs> and from our Drama Shop creative team and uh, the Director of Visual and Performing Arts at Gannon University, Elena Manchester. Hi, Elena. Hello. Hi guys, and before we start, uh, I want to mention for those of you watching right now on Facebook Live, feel free to post your questions and we'll do our best to monitor those uh, as we record tonight and then ask uh, as we get to the end. So check us out on uh, Facebook. You can find us if you don't follow us already at Drama Shop Eerie. We are there on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, and our guest today has been one of the most produced playwrights in America since 2015, topping the list twice, including 2019 and 2020. Uh, she's a two-time winner of the Steinberg ATCA New Play Award for I and You and the Book of Will, and the winner of the Lanford Wilson Award and the Otis Guernsey New Voices Award, a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize and John Gassner Award for Playwriting, and a recipient of the Mellon Foundation's residency with Marin Theatre Company. Uh, she studied Southern Literature and Drama at Emory University and Dramatic Writing at NYU's Tisch School, where she was a Reynolds fellow in social entrepreneurship. She is the co-author of the Miss Bennett plays with Margot Melcon, and uh, her solo plays include The Half-Life of Mary Curie, Exit Pursued by a Bear, The Taming, Toil and Trouble, The Revolutionists, and Silent Sky, among many others. And we are so grateful that she agreed to talk to us today. Please welcome the incredibly talented Lauren Gunderson. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> yeah, first of all, I want to say it is so cool to talk to you. Um, you were very kind to record a message for us when we were doing our production of Silent Sky. And then I reached out and said, hey, would you maybe do a shop talk? Wasn't sure if you would or not, but I was so thrilled that uh, that you're taking time out of, as, as we already talked about before we came on, a very busy day where you've had several other Zoom engagements as well. So <laughs> yes. thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a, a silver lining of this pandemic is being able to do a lot more of this. I think we're all reaching out to each other and able to do digital things. And that's, um, so anyway, it's, it's great. Pandemic, not so great. This pretty great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you've been hosting, uh, sorry, go ahead. Zach. Nope. It's on you. <laughs> you were talking about uh, the Facebook live conversations that you've been hosting with all sorts of theater experts and playwrights and critics and publishers, which have been a really cool resource and frankly, something to do for all of us. A, to do during quarantine, but you know, just an exciting resource to have at any time. Um, what's sort of your uh, your take on COVID and the impact on theater that it's having right now? I mean, the initial impact is kind of what spurred all of you to share your production of Silent Sky in the way that you did online. Um, we all had to pivot really quickly. And I think it, sometimes urgency takes the, the gates away um, so everyone can kind of rush through and define it themselves um, for good and bad, right? We're going to see um, some very tedious versions of theater where we just long to be back in the space creating art together. Mm -hmm. But then there's been some really amazing democratizing, equalizing um, forms of art right now, which I think is uh, incredible, valuable. I hope that part of it should continue. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm one of the folks watching all the National Theater um, productions and the Globe Theater in London, putting their productions of Shakespeare on and joining in to see a lot of my colleagues work all across the country. And I think that's wonderful. So I love that part of it. 
I think it also has made people emotionally very vulnerable. And of course, this was before the racial reckoning that um, happened, started a few weeks ago, a long, long coming and uh, um, much deserved, of course. But in that space, we were all kind of in something together in a way that, that Americans usually aren't in anything <laughs> together <laughs> um, in the way that COVID and the pandemic uh, drew us to reach out and say, like, how are you doing? And let's do a Zoom thing and, you know, parties and cocktails and reaching out and just saying, I'm here and I'm thinking about you. And I think that vulnerability, that emotional vulnerability has made, up, made us really receptive to, frankly, what theater does really well, which is empathy, which is connection, which is trying to understand, which is giving one's attention and time to somebody that's not you for a little bit. Um, and then of course, with the, the reckoning that we're in now is um, incredibly important uh, and something that I think theater is taking head on. Um, and you know, we're, we're able to really have incredibly important unflinching conversations now, uh, which is, is the most important for our art form because our art form wants to be that. It wants to be the cultural force that is you know, pushing down barriers to say, here's what's next, here's what's now, here's what love is, here's what family is, here's what we all are and can believe in. Um, and if theater doesn't, if it's too scared to have those conversations, then it doesn't deserve to be the art form that we want it to be. So mm. anyway, it's <laughs> what, what an era we are in. <laughs> yeah, and, and we definitely want to talk more about that. Um, on the subject of COVID though, yeah. I'm curious uh, your thoughts you know, you mentioned the National Theater, a lot of other folks are putting out a lot of great um, archive performances, basically, that they, you know, had the foresight or the, you know, happened to have filmed in advance. As we're going forward, though, into this era where theater is dark, um, you know, we're talking at Drama Shop about what can we plan, which, you know, the answer right now is not a whole lot, um, but what can we be doing? Should we be planning live stream shows? So I'm curious about your thoughts. Do you think that doing shows by live stream, is that a, a worthy substitute? Are we doing a disservice by trying to cram the live theater experience into a Zoom window? Yeah, I think it's a different thing. I don't think it, it can't be the same thing. So nothing is like sitting down in your theater programs, rustling, lights going down. That thrill is, you know, that's what I, I live and breathe. And it's been yeah. very hard to not have that um, in my life regularly, but a story is a story, and the more theater, the better. <laughs> so I don't actually care where it where it comes from. I think streaming is an option. Um, I actually was quite moved by your production, and what hit me—I don't know if I've told you this—but I actually wrote a little piece about it, which will come out on Three Views Theater, the new website um, that collects a lot of writers writing about writing and stuff like that. And yeah. Um, I use that as a, a way to talk about the power of something I believe in very much, which is, this is an apolitical statement, unless you're in the theater, um, but about stage directions. And you so thoughtfully read those stage directions with a kind of an off-screen voice. And it was, I was so grateful um, for that because it lifted up that simple, true thing. It made me examine what is a stage direction and what a secret it is, what a, a talisman what a, uh, you know, a secret code to know really what's going on to a character in a moment in a play. Um, and I hadn't thought of that in a long time until I, I you know, saw some of that in your production. So 
I'm grateful for that. But who knew? Like, great. Maybe we read plays in all their stage directions now. I sure that's fine. Um, yeah, and as you say that, I want to I want to yeah. give credit to Brittany Lee, the director of that production, who had the foresight to to make that choice and to to include a narrator. Uh, Robin was the narrator and did a fantastic job of, yeah. of knowing when to color those stage directions with emotion and when to just let them be plain descriptive text. Yeah, and a stage direction is so brutally simple. Um, and it's it's so expositional and it's so clear and forceful and it can the audience can do that work of world building in their minds, which is going to be more beautiful and extravagant than anything we can come up with. So it kind of is this interesting dance between a play and a novel. And I just I thought it was really, really, really cool. But it also makes me think of stuff like audio plays. I was lucky to do a production through Audible off-Broadway last year, which is now you can have it as an audio play. And that really taught me a ton about the intimacy, the kind of strange, brilliant intimacy of an audio play, because you are not watching the person from 50 feet away. You're next to them. You're in their brain. You are right beside them. And it's this kind of another blend, a new experience that is theatrical, but also um, fresh. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thinking about what that reality is. Like, can you listen to a play, experience a play as you're going on a walk around your neighborhood and maybe, wow, that's a kind of cool way of doing something. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking a ton about all these options. I don't think anyone has a great answer. That means we all have some answer, but that's okay. <laughs> Who knows what we're doing. Thought, though. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. And we will be back in the theater at some point. My husband is a virologist. And so he is very confident that a vaccine when it, when it comes will be the thing that can provide all of that confidence to really get back to some version of normal. I think we are, hopefully we'll be looking for a new normal when we get back. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah. What a time to be married to a virologist. I'll yeah. tell you what. Way to look, go. The <laughs> first, well, I mean, I was the, I mean, this sounds like I'm tuning my horn, but I was, um, I was the, one of the early theater people on Twitter being like, um, y'all, we need a plan because yeah. this is coming. My husband is not effing around with this idea. He is worried. This was in like the end of January or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my husband's an engineer and for Valentine's Day, he bought me a 50 pound bag of rice and he's like, you watch. And I'm like, you're crazy, man. But no, he wasn't crazy. Thanks Just for that rice. Foresight. Thank you, engineer brain. Thank you. Right. I know. Um, so, talking yeah. about your process and how it uh, how it might be shifting in this time of COVID. When you write, do you tend to write kind of alone with a blank page, blank slate, or do you incorporate kind of an ensemble or devised sort of process? Definitely more on my own, although now most of my work is collaboration. Um, mm. So writing with either one other writer or two, and sometimes more, depending on the kind of nature of the project. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly do a more typical playwright, like leave me alone, shut the door, yeah. <laughs> oh, the cat is allowed in the room, kind of a, um, a thing. I also have two little boys though, so sometimes that is tenable and sometimes that is untenable. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the work for me in that devised kind of way, I, I did, do not do devised theater. I'm not smart or brave enough, <laughs> but oh. in the room um, for early productions of premieres, workshops, all sorts of development, I learn 90% of mm. what the play is. And yeah. so when I, I teach writing, I often say that once you finish the first draft, you're actually at the beginning of the process. <laughs> you're ah, the yeah. You're beginning your playwriting, which sounds to totally intimidating. Um, but it, it's, it's true. What you learn as soon as those words are lifted up into air and breath and body, it's a different thing. Um, mm -hmm. and your ideas are instantly tested and confirmed. Wow, that really worked. Well, that was, did not work. So 
that give and take of great collaborators um, as actors, directors, dramaturgs, designers, everything um, is, is an integral part of the process. Mm -hmm. And you speak a lot of um, in, in the, 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 the webinars that I've seen you speak in about action and the importance of action. And it makes me wonder, um, have you always been a writer first? Because when I hear you talk about that, I think, well, my training was in acting and man, I love working with a writer who knows that I'm on stage to do something. God, that helps. And even when I'm directing, I'm working backwards, forwards, David Ball, I'm working at the end and moving backwards. What am I, what are my characters doing? So have you always been driven to be the writer or does, uh, did you start other places too? Definitely wanted to be an actor first. Um, mm. I don't think I was a very good actor. Like I was fine if the part was very similar to me. Yes. <laughs> like any stretching involved. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> no I don't, don't do that very well. So I mm. was like, uh, maybe not. Um, but it also that thought of going, well, why aren't there more roles written for mm. young women that have brains and spunk and, and, um, ambition and why is everyone somebody's girlfriend or sister and Ooh. you know why why is it just Ophelia and Gertrude and like why can't come on now so right. that is part of the thing that opened me up to say well let's write the thing then yeah. um, which centering women's stories has been the story of my entire career so that certainly helped um, but I also think the technical the technical process of being an actor even a bad one <laughs> is you do exactly what you say like what am I doing like what am I doing here and it's not to like ask the question to set up the main character's revelation. You're after mm -mm. something. And mm. so I think knowing um, how fun that is to write a scene where actors are doing stuff um, and wanting and testing and trying and failing. And um, that to me is not just fun for actors, but it's critical for audiences. That's what makes it boring. Um, and yeah. I always um, talk about Tony Kushner saying the one thing you cannot do is bore. <laughs> you can do a lot of yeah. things. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> unforgettable. <be> boring. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. So yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you've obviously obviously written some female heavy shows and to an, a certain extent that's sort of become one of the hallmarks of your writing. I'm curious when you were kind of first starting out as a writer, was that any was that ever an obstacle or something that that people maybe had a problem with? And then on the flip side of that, as a female writer, do you feel like it's your responsibility to write for females? Because it shouldn't be. <laughs> but I mean, do you feel like you have that added pressure on you now to write for women? Yeah, I think I do, but I love it. I think there's, you know, somebody, I, I often get asked, kind of like, how do you find these stories of, of women who history has you know, not, not remembered. I was like, how do I, they are literally everywhere. <laughs> there is no shortage of incredible women whose stories we can lift up. And that means that there's no shortage of incredible space for fictionalized women or women, you know. So I, I think um, women's stories have in the last, you know, decades that I've been um, around and writing, um, that has certainly changed. I think leadership in theaters perhaps needs, well, not even perhaps, it definitely needs to be shaken up and more equity in, in all ways that we mean that. Um, uh, but storytelling of women, I think it was starting to change when I was starting to write. Um, so that I haven't gotten a ton of pushback that I know of, but honestly, who's, I don't know what those conversations were when I left um, the room. So I don't, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I will say there is a, an often uh, um, the most kind of pushback in terms of like, what category do we put her in is the funniest plays of mine, like the wildest farces, the kind of craziest comedy. That's, I think, harder for people to go like, oh, but when she's writing like heady, serious science ladies from history, I know where to put that. Mm. But like crazy farces that are political or that talk about violence or what? I, I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know? So um, I think that's the, and that's fr frankly some of my favorite plays. They're also the ones that don't get done as much. So I'm all, mm. always like, anyone who's going to do a, some of those wilder plays, I'm like, talk to me because this, you're, you're, you're my team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, that's interesting. Do you find that frustrating at all that people try to put, or are they, if they're trying to find a box to, you know, put somebody in and you're like, you're not going to do that. Like, is that, yeah. or are you like, I'll accept that challenge of. I mean, we're a very categorizing species, mm -hmm. so it doesn't, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that people go, which box do we, <laughs> um, but there's a, a lot of us, I think a lot of creative people, we love to box hop. We are just put me in here mm. and I'll go in here and here and here. And then we want them all. So um, I think uh, every play of mine is very different um, from mm -hmm. the next one. Now, the more plays I write, the more we're like, oh, we can generally categorize those as history plays, generally science plays, generally like wild feminist farces and, <laughs> and et cetera. And there's a few outliers like Book of Will and, and I and you kind yeah. of hover wow. as their own little thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, I think there is a lot of people who perhaps have just seen Silent Sky would think that I'm a certain kind of, of writer and I would love to surprise them <laughs> with the that. next, the next kind of, of production. Well, across all the boxes. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your writing process going into yes. writing. Um, and so starting off with that spark of an inspiration when you have an idea that you know you want to flesh out into something and see turn into to a play. Can you talk us a little bit through the development of one of your plays, maybe using a specific example if you want or not? Um, how do you get from that spark of an idea to finished, published, produced play? Sure. I mean, I, I um, perhaps notoriously at this point, um, try to find that ending first, mm. which sounds backwards, but um, for me, the ending is what a play is about. It's the point, you know, why, why did we watch for this show for two hours to get to this ending, this specific moment, this mm. uh, concoction of emotion and um, agency and defeat and triumph and all of it, what's the point? So the point is not the first 20 pages. The, the first 20 pages sets up the last 20. So to me, I have to have that uh, sense of where are we going? What is this story really about? Um, which means the process actually looks a lot like talking to myself, thinking a lot, not writing, not typing anything, mm. and then suddenly kind of going, oh, type, 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 type. Um, so rolling around those, that, that idea in my, my head about where we're going. Um, and that means that you kind of say, well, who's going to win? <laughs> Do they, do the lovers get together? Do, is vengeance achieved? Is, um, you know, justice sought and won? Um, and the, the sooner you can answer that for all those writers out there, the sooner you can write towards that and build all those delicious little eddies and corners and, um, you know, so that the play can kind of find its way there in a really kind of swift, exciting, efficient um, and emotional, emotional way. So, well, once I do that, then it's usually outline or some version of an outline. Sometimes it's just literally saying it out loud to nobody but my cat in my office of going, here's what's going to happen in the play. 
this is going to happen and this happened, the midpoint. That's make a great audience. It's they true. do. Very judgmental, <laughs> but also very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, silent, silent judgment. Um, she's literally looking at me right now like, ugh. <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, and once you like, kind of have those tent poles and then um, finding that most profound and meaningful ending. Um, and the truth is that once you get to the ending, ideally you have to do less than you might have thought you would have to, to have it feel. If you've done the work before um, to set up these symbols and to set up these meaningful pieces that kind of fall into place at the end, um, then it feels like you don't have to stop the play and be like, let me explain to you why this is the ending and why this person is deciding all this thing that they're deciding and why it's so important. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so this, <laughs> this is more like if you can do it with a word, if you can do it with one gesture, a handhold, a kiss or whatever, then we go, oh, that's all the feelings and all the things. So <laughs> there's those stage directions. <laughs> so I'm telling you all about stage direction. I have to ask, is that am I seeing a story diagram on the wall behind yes. you? <laughs> you are. I love that. that. It's a bit of a failed attempt at a play, but yes, um, it mocks me every time I come to my office. Oh. I'll race you. I'll race you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but sometimes you need to, it's, there are visual people, I think outlines oh, yeah. can be in, in mm -hmm. many forms, but an outline is really anything that gives you the information to kind of go, here's how to write this junk, next to this junk, next to this junk. Um, that's that's this stack of papers right here. There you go. <laughs> I definitely, I'm an out, when we do devised stuff in particular, it's outlines of outlines of outlines yeah. and it's like what can we take away now what don't we need let's yeah. brevity yeah that's right and then rewriting I mean the truth is for all those writers out there do not fear the rewrite I mean I get to draft 20 or something um, 25 you know on opening night so it's it is not uncommon um, even now plays that have premiered a decade ago and I'll still be like mm, maybe I'll take that out <laughs> mm. Yeah, I was going to ask if that feeling ever goes away, like that feeling of it's, it never feels complete. No. Um, oh, no. great. <laughs> Good to know. No. <laughs> it can be like amazing productions, but some one production will kind of expose like, oh, yeah, I can't get away with not explaining that uh, or like, oh, I wish that was funny or I wish it was actor proof funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like That's that funny. actor proof. <laughs> Uh, yes. What kind of things um, inspire you currently in your creative process? Um, oh, Lord. I mean, I know the world is a thing. Fire, um, dumpster fire. Yeah. I mean, I will say I mentioned collaboration earlier, and I think that's what's inspiring to me is the more I've done of these classes online, the more of these collaborative projects I've done with um, my co-writer, Marco Melkon, with the co-writer and great friend of mine, Reggie D. White. Um, I'm doing a project at a theater in the Bay Area where there's three writers. Um, and so really just, I don't know that where I, you know, I'm, I'm, the more musicals that I've done in the last five years, I've been book writer on a lot of different musicals. And mm. um, that is, of course, inherently collaborative. Um, there's so much collaboration in a musical from the get-go because you're working with usually it's not obviously one person doing all music and lyrics and book. So I think that has prepared me and excited me and been like, I don't want to write a play by myself ever again. <laughs> That's not totally true. There are some like very special ideas that I, I am, you know, doing the long work uh, mm. to figure out, but the collaborative stuff has been most inspiring. Mm. At what point in the development of a play do you start to involve others if it's not a collaborative effort? 
as far as maybe bringing people in for a table read or workshopping? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I can, as soon as I get at least that crappy draft one, I'll be like, yeah. all right, oof. Get, it, get the reading on the calendar. I will always have people over when I could have people over. Actually, we were supposed to do a first read of Margot and I's new, new Pemberley play, like the week of our, that our shutdown began here in the Bay Area. We oh. were like, but um, uh, yeah, so we, I, we slash I will get everyone together and make a pot of vegetarian chili and mm. pour a bunch of wine and then have people come over and read it. And it's always that first kind of, it's always a humbling thing. It's always like, well, this is a big old hole or like, that is not funny. This is so long, you know, but that's, that feedback is, is, is essential um, early and often. Mm. Yeah. And I was going to ask you if that, if what that feels like, is it a vulnerable experience for you? And you said humbling. I think you took the word literally that I was going to ask in my question. <laughs> yeah. But it also, I mean, to me, it's a great, it's not just a like, did we like it or not? It's a, what does, what conversation is inspired by this? Where does the conversation go? What questions are asked? And that to me often answers so many questions that I was like, I don't know what, what is the point of this or that, or, you know, finding levels, finding dimension and characters, finding whole different tracks um, for characters to go on comes out of um, those conversations. So I have a kind of cohort of people I really trust uh, that are performers and directors and dramaturgs and things like that. Um, so I, I definitely depend uh, on them. And in that process, when do you know when to take the note and when to listen to your gut and what to let go of and what to hold on to? Always listen to your gut. I mean, that's the whole thing of developing um, a voice in the theater is listening to that that voice that's like, no, that's not at all what I'm going to do. Because <laughs> you know, I haven't and on, or earlier in my career and I've either been fortunate enough to get a, pr a production later that I could correct it and kind of switch it back to the way I originally um, wanted it. Uh, Silent Sky was one of those actually, where it used to end on their love story um, when they oh. were like together, I love you, I love you too, oh my gosh, ah, kiss, woo, blackout. But that made it about her love for him and that's not what the play's about. Um, so switching it to the discovery made it a story of science and a love of science as opposed to a love of love. <laughs> um, wow. So that was one of those things that was a kind of, I was nudged in that direction in, in the earlier production and then was able to, to kind of go, mm. uh, yeah. So, but yes, I mean, that is the truth. I mean, don't take every note, good Lord. Um, and I think you have to find the people you trust. That's really it. Find the people who trust, find the people who have asked you, what are you trying to write? What is important to you to, mm. to say? If they don't ask that, then I don't give a crap what they're telling me about my play. <laughs> are you to ask what I'm trying to do? So how are you going to, you know? So anyway, um, Yes, uh, but I, I love being able to, I love the conversation that theater inspires. That's the entire point of writing it. So I love talking to people about it, but it's, uh, yeah, you certainly don't take everything. Yeah. So you've tackled science and history in several of your, of your works. Is that an intentional theme for you or is it something that just is kind of a coincidence? Um, I have always been very interested in the sciences, um, but partly because of the story inherent within them. And I had uh, a science teacher when I was in high school um, who was just really good about making science really interesting and adventurous and um, urgent, um, as opposed to like memorize these things and get mm -hmm. back to me with your homework. Mm -hmm. It was about like, wow, can you imagine that eureka moment of Newton, you know, whatever version, yeah. there's a lot of great stories out there about that. And so it kind of clicked into me, like, I know I want to write plays, 
I don't know what to write about. And my first play was definitely about like a Southern girl. (laughs) Check. Um, What do we do after that? Write what you know, right? (laughs) I started there. I did. I did start there. Um, And, uh, but then it comes like, what, what, what is worthy of this great form of storytelling and science is dramatic. It's human. Like it, it fits into our body and the tools of theater are human beings. Um, so how does that story fit? Uh, it also makes for a great metaphor. It has great consequence, both politically, um, you know, in, in all the ways. Um, and it's, yeah, I just, I find it, find it quite, quite a rich subject matter. So how much do you end up having to research versus kind of letting, embracing dramatic license? And, I mean, you research a lot. Especially with historical figures. Yeah, you research a lot and then forget a lot, <laughs> as you write. Um, because the, the goal, of course, is to tell a great story. And that means that you're going to have to edit. Or if it was just, you know, the recitation of a Wikipedia article, that would not be great storytelling. But what storytellers mm-hmm. do is to edit life so that it, it focuses our attention on the points that you want to focus on. So for say the Marie Curie play that was off Broadway that you can hear on Audible, um, there was some like squinching of time and elongation of time and kind of supposing that this happened in this exact order will help me tell the story of sisterhood and um, uh, resilience that I'm trying to tell as opposed to just going like, well, exactly this happened in this order. Um, You could read a, a biography about that, but. And even in Silent Sky, the character of Margaret, correct me if I'm wrong, she didn't actually have a sister, Margaret, right? She did, but she died very, very young. So okay. it was kind of a, a, a collaboration or a, um, a combination of Henrietta's mother and sister. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping back to just kind of like the general writing too, a little bit, I'm interested in, I mean, you've been successful, obviously, because of the strength of your writing. But um, but as you know, you can be a great writer and some never get published or never get produced. And I don't want to ask, like, how did you get discovered? Or when when <laughs> did that first happen? Was there this moment? Was there one particular play? Um, because that puts the credit on somebody else and not on you where hmm. you deserve that credit. But um, how did you go from aspiring playwright, knowing that this is what you wanted to do, like loving science and wanting to turn it into something, to becoming one of the most published playwrights in the country? Hmm. Um, well, I started writing early, so I've had a long time actually doing this. Um, I started in like early high school. Um, so my first plays that, that, that Southern lady play, um, that I had, it was gonna get mm. written at some point, yeah. <laughs> had to do it, had to do it, um, was written really young. And I learned a couple of things. One, I love magical realism. I love playing the mm. game of theater that you can suddenly someone says, and then I died. And you're all like, what? You know, because it, it just, we've made the agreement that things you say on stage, we agree to believe in that moment. And that means anything can happen. And kind of realizing that made me think, all right, it's not, I'm not a kitchen sink realism kind of dramatist. I'm, um, I want, I want to go places we can't go, uh, except for in the theater. So I learned doing that. Um, and I think that um, that kind of writing perhaps got some attention. Um, I, I don't know exactly, but I mean, again, you answered your own question. I have no idea <laughs> how it happened, but I will say I write what I want to see. I write plays that I have never seen before. I write stuff that, um, if it were described to me, I would be like, yeah, when is that coming out? I want to see that. Um, I write plays that make me feel the way that, 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 um, clicks in to my heart and mind that connects to those kind of 
I, hmm. <laughs> words, words, words. Um, <laughs> I, I try to make moments in theater that push me to go like, how can I be better? How can I know more? Mm. How can, how can the world be, how can, how do you leave with enough hope to do something about it or change mm. your perspective? Um, so I don't write plays that are particularly dark in the end and kind of hopeless in that kind of edgy, like rah, kind of way. <laughs> That's not so much me. Um, but I also, it's not like sunshine and roses and free cupcakes for everybody kind of a play. You want it to have this sense of awe, a sense of, of hard, hard hope, um, but that there's work to be done and we want to, we're the type kind of people who want to do it. Um, so I think some combination of all of that, I write a lot of different things. So if like, you're not into history plays, you can have the farces. And if you're not into that, you can have, you know, the science stuff or some comedies or some children's theater musicals. Um, I think there's like a, just a lot of me out there, which is a funny way to say it, but um, yeah, I'm just kind of never done. And I, I, I always, I love a challenge and I love a way of thinking like, how can we tell that fresh, but also have that, that satisfaction, the kind of like chocolate and peanut butter of it, where you're like, oh, I know I'm gonna mm. like this. <laughs> mm. Anyway, so, considered writing a self-help book, just because I feel like everything yeah. you just said, I want to just I take all of those pieces in and use them as my daily mantras. Like, mm -hmm. and I thought I couldn't get any better. And you talked about peanut butter, chocolate, chocolate peanut butter, chocolate so, peanut butter. Just yes. if you do shift from playwriting, I think yeah. there's something in it. Sign me up. All yes. right. Well, the three of us are going to have a long career in that vein, and that's it. Mm. No mm. And I will read it. There you go. Yay! Um, I want to ask, Elena, we've talked before on this podcast about the idea of imposter syndrome, right? That mm. even in our- Fraud police. Our, exactly. Mm. And in our academia lives and in our drama shop lives, that there are moments where we kind of feel like, you know, do we have any right acting as though we know anything about anything? Mm. So I'm curious about, you know, being a playwright. Is there, was there a moment where you finally- like embrace the mantra or the the title of I'm a playwright or have you always kind of felt like yes that's what I am um I certainly wanted to to embrace it but I remember the first time I was in high school again and there was an Atlanta actor I was waiting for like an improv show and in, in the line and he turns around and he was kind of like oh yeah you're that you're that that playwright girl and I was like oh <laughs> So, so somebody cool. named me and he was like one of the best actors in Atlanta. And I was always like, I loved his work. He was, he, you know, was Hamlet and did anyway. So the oh. fact that he kind of was, you know, I think he'd done a reading of something and anyway, but he just, it was, it was really meaningful. It was, it was really meaningful. Daniel Mann is his name. Hi, Daniel. Um, <laughs> and he, I remember him being like, oh yeah, the, the playwright, that playwright. And I was like, oh, I oh. am. <laughs> Which so, actually kind yeah. of brings up a, another thing I wanted to ask about is as a playwright, there's sort of a, a built-in anonymity there, mm. and yet you're the most produced playwright in the country. So what's that dichotomy like? Does that does that feel like anything to you? Um, uh, it feels pretty good. Um, what it does should. It, feel like? it should. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it feels like. Um, I it's interesting because being a playwright doesn't feel anonymous. So I, I, I kind mm. of, and I'm so aware of other playwrights that it, that's the first thing I look at is like, who wrote this? <gasps> Can't wait. So um, to me, if they playwrights feel like superstars, <laughs> mm, absolutely. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, it is a funny job. Like any writer, I mean, you're alone for a long time in, in your thoughts and answering your own questions and getting mad at yourself. And <laughs> it's like lonely and um, <laughs> confusing. <laughs> Good. But then for playwrights, suddenly it's not. Suddenly you're in a room full of people and everyone's looking to you saying, why did you write this? And what is the story about? Mm. How can we make it better? What's, ooh, yeah, tell us what's next. Um, so we kind of, it's a bit of whiplash always from like by yourself, by yourself, by yourself, maybe one other person and you have this lovely little coven and then suddenly it's like public and then it gets more public because if people come and then the premiere and then, oh my gosh. So you kind of, I'm kind of constantly bouncing between those, um, those realities of kind of like chatty in the lobby with a cocktail playwright and the like at home alone being like, this doesn't work. Yeah. Do you consider yourself more of an introvert or an extrovert? Yeah. Introvert. I know I know how to be extroverted just because mm -hmm. it teaches you that of the yes. many things it teaches you but I am definitely the one that's like I don't actually want to talk to anybody <laughs> yeah I, I think I find, we all feel that <laughs> the, I find like the older I get and the more people are like no but really what are you more of the theater people I know are like oh, I'm an introvert I can't wait to go home and take my bra off like I don't yes. want to do this <laughs> yeah I talk to I anybody mm-mm it's all yeah, about putting like, on that mask, right? Opening night parties yeah. are always like, oh, God. Ooh, small talk, yay. Wine, just wine, just more wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that. I feel but it that. is this amazing thing. I mean, what, what we're talking about is such a magical career to have anything to do with, you know? And I think mm. certainly what this pandemic has taught me is how much, how much I get from the collectivizing, the congregation of people going to the theater, of getting your your wine and heading to your seat. And like, this play could be the best thing I've ever seen. Every play, I sit down being like, this is gonna be the best play I've ever seen. Often disappointed, but you know, whatever. That's um, quite a bar, <laughs> that's a bar. But sometimes it's not, sometimes it's like yeah. just a moment. And I was like, that is the best mm. moment I've ever seen. That is the best piece of that I've ever seen. There's always something about even crappy plays that make me be like, I would really like to leave intermission. It make me go like, I like that. That's I'm responding. And you know, so there's mm. something so I just am often struck in this moment of disconnection of literal and figurative isolation in terms of what we're allowed to do with our craft of like, it's just freaking cool that we get to make it when we get to make it, even in yeah. virtual ways, we've like told a story. Other species don't do that. Like we do it and we do it really well. So I kind of have to, every now and then when I'm feeling goofy, I just have to pause and be like, it's pretty rad. Theater's magic. Absolutely. It really is. It really is. And I think we all felt that with Silent Sky that, oh, you know, when we had been dark for a while and we weren't sure, and we're still not sure exactly what, you know, the next few months are going to be, but to come together for that experience and, and to keep going, you know, was such an important thing for us. And, and it was the perfect play at the perfect time for us, so. Oh, good. Well, they did a beautiful job of it. Well, thank you. I know we have uh, several of the cast members watching and commenting on Facebook. So. Yeah, I check the... Y'all did so good. <laughs> um, I do want to jump, if we can, and, and kind of talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things going on in our country today. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of unrest, a lot of pain. Um, in the wake of the murders of George Freud, uh, Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and frankly, a list that's, that's disgustingly long. And I think it's, first of all, we should acknowledge this is an all white panel, um, which in some ways kind of speaks to the problem. Um, I've said before, like I could give lots of excuses about Drama Shop being a small organization, 
all volunteers, lots of reasons why we maybe haven't done more to, uh, to be more diverse and to provide more representation on our stage. Um, bottom line, there are no easy answers. And, and these are, you know, I think it's important that we're at least asking these questions. So um, when you look just kind of at, at theater as a whole, what, when it comes to race, what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? What responsibilities do we have as advocates, as people in positions of power or people with influence? Yeah, um, I think the, it all starts with recognizing that the, the white supremacist culture that this country is based in presumes whiteness is best, is common, is, is normal. Um, and that means that we often don't see our whiteness. When people of color, indigenous black people see that or they are made to see that every second of the days of their lives. Um, and we aren't asked that. So in terms of storytelling, we need to ask ourselves that um, constantly. And this is who's directing your shows, who's designing your shows, who is in the shows, what stories you're, you're telling. Um, and this can be everything. I mean, again, I, I'm learning as much. I don't know the answers, obviously. I'm a white lady. <laughs> so I am listening to all of my um, black indigenous people of color colleagues and, um, you know, pausing and really kind of passing the mic to, to them. But I will say a lot of the stuff that I, um, have learned and I think is really important is making sure that we are not afraid to name, uh, white fragility, white privilege. Um, we're not afraid to name whiteness. It's not a thing that should make us go like, uh, it's to make us say like, yes, that is, that is a true fact. And let us, it's kind of the difference between when we were talking about colorblind casting versus color conscious casting and going like, you can't be colorblind. The world does not allow people of color to be, to, to be like everyone else. It does be like white people. It doesn't, um, not in this country. So we can't pretend that. Um, but it means that if you're doing a production production of Romeo and Juliet, yeah, cast the hell out of it, uh, cast the rainbow. Um, and if you're choosing plays that aren't classical in that way and thus classical, I'm just using that as an example of something that you can kind of cast in a lot of different ways. Um, but like, why not cast, you know, Tennessee Williams in that way as well? Or um, I would say reach out to playwrights um, like myself. Uh, there have been many times that people have reached out and said like, is it okay to cast it in this way? Um, and sometimes this has been in gender too. A play of mine um, has a character of Voltaire, very much a man in, in history, and they cast this incredible woman in the role. And it was just great. It was awesome. So there's a way to kind of reach out to, to playwrights and, and have that question. But it goes beyond casting, of course. It's like, who are you giving? Oof, Lord. Little butterflash flew in my glasses. Um, where's the cat when you need it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, that, but there's a lot of like who you're letting in the building. Who um, I'm hearing this is uh, the difference between a safe space and an affirming space. Mm. Like a safe space is like you've got something to be scared of, but an affirming space is like I cannot wait to have you here. We are so thrilled. This is your building. This is your um, hall for storytelling. Um, so I think all of those shifts are really good. And then sometimes it's like the big questions of like, we're an all white company. We have an all white board. We are like, let's, let's name it for what it is. Um, cause you can't do anything about it if you don't have a definition of it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm, I am, I'm frankly thrilled and really grateful to, um, the black indigenous and people of color community in the theater for doing the hard work. It's hard. It's hard to say this, it's hard to make a movement happen and they've done the hard work and it is our job to do as hard of the work on our end 
to say, um, I hear you, I'm, I am learning, I will change, I will fight for you for the, with the rest of my career. I will, I will fight um, and, and make space and like not take the job. Like that's a hard thing because as artists, yeah. we are always like job, get the job, get the job, do the work, get the show, get the thing, get cast. But what if, what if the real ask is to like sit back, like don't take mm. it, make sure that, that they give that to somebody who's not going to be lifted up as easily as you are. So I'm thinking a lot about all of those things and yeah. Do you just, impact your, your writing of characters? Um, well, certainly the last couple of years, I've been much more um, aware of when I'm writing specific um, racial backgrounds or ethnicities, having a cultural consultant, having people that we pay with American dollars <laughs> to for their time and yes. generosity and vulnerability. Um, and often if it's, if it's a, if it's a play, I, I mean, I don't have many plays where there are um, specifically people that I don't know that lived experience, the, the characters that I don't, you know, have that experience in my life. Um, so if there were, I would probably think I should, probably shouldn't be the one to write this play, honestly. This is what I'm talking mm. about in terms of the like, don't do it. <laughs> like, you don't have to write yeah. every play. There's no, just because it's a good idea does not mean that you're the one to tell it. Um, mm. uh, so there's a lot of kind of me going, ooh, that's somebody else's idea. Or let's collaborate. Let's have... Um, there's a lot of plays of, of ideas that I've just dreamed about that would, you know, have a group of us. And the point would be to rewrite history with three women of different backgrounds or whatever. Anyway. So yes, there is a consultation. There is saying, maybe I shouldn't write this. Um, there is saying, uh, but then plays like the Pemberley plays in Book of Will, it's very easy for, uh, to put in the casting section. It says, you know, please cast diversely. Shakespeare is for everybody. Jane Austen is for everybody. Um, and that doesn't solve, you know, we're, we're not putting a specific lived experience on stage when you just cast diversely, but it gives work to actors um, of color. It gives, it gives opportunity, it gives visibility. I mean, I, we've had some actors who've been in our plays say that the fact that we've cast, you know, the dashing Mr. Darcy um, as uh, there's been several black actors who've, who've played him and they're like, I never get cast as Mr. Darcy. <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, that is a small gesture and I'm not, you know, trying not to do the pat on the back thing, but that is one of those things when you just put that line right in the beginning of the play, casting directors are forced to go, oh, right, 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 right. There is, I was assuming everyone was right, was white. Yeah. Like, yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. So yeah. let's not do that. <laughs> I think that's that great talking about like um, moving away from the idea of neutral. Like the <laughs> yeah. white is not neutral. It right. is a choice. And I, um, and so kind of the correlation that I keep seeing between like, what do we do in theater now? And like COVID response is some people responded to COVID very like internal, right? They kind of shut down and they're like, I don't really know what this means. And some people responded with COVID with like content, content, content. And I'm seeing a lot of stuff from people responding to Black Lives Matter movement of, of um, now, and of course not, we should all be saying Black Lives Matter because they do, obviously. But this idea of like uh, white splaining or something or giving your opinion or in a, in a, when you should be sitting and listening. So yeah. do you see a lot of like, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but do you see any sort of co uh, correlation of like the COVID way we, the, how we are 
approaching COVID, theater and COVID and theater and this new social movement that it really isn't new. We just haven't been listening as well as we should be. I mean, I think that that's actually a fabulous question because the response to COVID pandemic was instant. There was a lot of like, what are we going to do? We got to switch. We got to do something right now to turn, put the show online. We got to do the this. We got to say the this. We got to invent, invest. How we, let's talk to the unions. Let's talk to the actors. Let's talk to everybody and just like make it, make it happen. Theater's not going away. Mm-hmm. And if, if we hadn't have had the same response to the Black Lives Matter movement, specifically related into theater, I would have been like, what are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the fact that we have seen a lot of theaters do even baby steps, mm-hmm. um, which we need more than baby steps right now. We need mm-hmm. accountable action. Um, but we're seeing a lot of that. And we're seeing a lot of people, even though, you know, because people are furloughed because of the pandemic, it's hard to kind of let's rehire everybody right now. Like there's a lot of planning into the future. I mean, the, the pandemic has certainly put a lot of those, um, you know, slowed a lot of those actionable things down, but season planning, talking to playwrights, really reckoning with, with what you've produced in the past and why you've chosen those plays and um, thinking back and going, okay, we're, every time we did an African-American play, we're only African-American people on stage as actors. Why were there no designers, mm-hmm. directors, dramaturgs? Like, wh- have we commissioned um, people in this, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I think there is, all of that is happening fast, quickly, and in large part, again, to the group um, that I mentioned before, partly because they just came out with that massive statement, though we see you in white American theater statement, mm-hmm. which was incredibly profound and brave and important and critical, and everybody should go read it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's really important. Uh, and I, I think we're seeing that similar response um, now. I, and I think holding them up is actually great. So like in a pandemic, we're all like, let's fix it, let's do, let's innovate, let's go now. And if we hit a Black Lives Matter in, in American theater and we can't do that quickly, we want to be thoughtful. We want we want to do that work, but we, we don't have the same urgency to go, let's fix it. Let's innovate. Let's go. Let's change. Let's do that. Then like that, that shows us who we are, mm-hmm. really. You know, Aristotle says it's, it's what you do, not what you say um, that defines who you are. And I think all, all these theaters are certainly in that position of saying, all right, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> On the subject of COVID, if I can kind of jump back to that a little bit, I'm curious as to how that's impacting you as a writer. I know um, some people under these current conditions are saying, okay, now let's go, let's do something, let's let's get creative, let's, you know, the people, people keep talking about how they're getting stuff done around their houses. I'm not one of them. I don't know how that's happening. But I'm curious as to, as far as your writing, are you finding it hard to write. I mean, I, I personally, I'm sort of in like emotional overload and the thought of digging into a character is it's kind of a daunting proposition right now. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, all of the projects that because the people involved are, you know, fancy, busy, this and that, you know, especially these musicals that I was mentioning, um, it's kind of hard to make progress because we're all living in different places and everyone's busy and on tours or whatever. And then of course, now we're not. So the first week I was kind of silent and I couldn't figure out what to even think of writing and just like brain explosion. And then the next week I got like emails from everybody being like, well, now that I'm home, let's go write this music. And now that I'm home, I have all this time now that I'm, and I was like, okay, so now I have way too much to do. <laughs> Everybody's like, let's make this thing, which is amazing. And, and I, I certainly am most comfortable with a little too much to do um, at the moment. 
Now that meant that I've certainly had to take some time and, and drink a lot of whiskey and mm. <laughs> like take, take some, watch some, you know, Netflix and Hulu and stuff. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so I'm feeling uh, like I am, I think it's a funny time to make theater because a lot of us are making theater for the old version of theater. Ooh. which doesn't mean it will be unhelpful to have that when things open up again, but how do you develop a musical if you don't have Broadway for a year, two years? How do you do that? Um, how do you, now there's stuff you certainly can do. And of course, every great project starts with a great script. So we're doing the work we can now. Luckily the writers are, we're like, I'm used to being at home <laughs> and with a lot of deadlines. So this is, this is fine. Um, but so I, I, I think that work, honestly work that has already been in progress is coming quite easily to me. Um, partly because again, everyone's easy to access. Uh, so we're like, well, let's get on a Zoom and talk about it. Let's read the mm -hmm. scene out loud. Let's yeah. do this and that. So that kind of stuff is happening, but brand new ideas, it feels like you're writing in a hurricane. You kind of are like, I don't know which way is north. I don't know when this is over. I don't know if this is the worst or not. Um, and it, I mean, both in terms of this racial reckoning we're thankfully having, but also in terms of this pandemic, are schools coming back? Or is everyone gonna be okay? All of these protests as vital as they are, are very dangerous in a pandemic. So like, are we gonna look at another loss of valuable life? and? Oh, Lord. And then, you know, we're not even at November yet. <laughs> so there's mm -hmm. a lot. A lot. Um, so I feel like, again, those ideas and a lot of them are set in history. A lot of them are adaptations of literature and things like that that are easy to kind of go, I can escape into this category and write. But writing anywhere near now is very um, is hard and it should be. You know, this is a very strange time that I think it'll take us a decade to figure out what were the dominoes that fell in what order to get wherever we are then. Um, well, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I will say I, I fancy myself an aspiring playwright as I asked you the question. I'm reluctant to embrace that mantle anytime soon, but I found myself, you know, the a piece that I was working on was one that kind of dealt with trauma and it mm. was set in the very, really in the present until all of this unfolded and I realized it can't be in the present. It has to be last year because it can't be after COVID or during COVID because the, the world is changing. So how do you write in a world that's changing? I mean, I guess maybe you answered it with focusing on some of those pieces that are rooted in a specific point in history yeah. or that are true escapism. Yeah, or solid confessional. I mean, that's one mm. of the projects for Dreaming Up is with a couple brilliant actors and dramaturgs. And we're exploring like, what is the theater of personal confession. What is just mm. saying, here's a secret. Here's what I had for breakfast. Here's what I wish I could tell my kids, but I'm too scared to. Here is, I mean, I don't know, like it, can it be true in theater? Can it be? So again, this is where we're like, maybe we're in a new, there's new genres being born right now of we're all staring into our screens and feeling like we're having one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, even more so than if we were around a round table, you know, we're all, yeah. we see each other's faces, we see each other's intimate reactions, we're in each other's homes, watching each other's cats. And, you know, there is, it's a funny, it's a weird way to exist. And we've all been thrust into it instantly. And I think it is, the first thing is it's fine to not write, to not create, to not have like a great take on the moment. Um, it's fine to just kind of survive the day and have good, have interesting thoughts and have your brain stretched a little bit. But 
Yeah. I mean, I think the most successful theater that we've seen in the moment is stuff that was born and developed before this happened and is being released now in some ways. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been some exceptions to this, some stuff that's been born during this time. But um, yeah, it's a we're all trying to figure it out. But I certainly believe in the power of theater, the power even in the memory of being together in a time and space to see a show live. Um, So I certainly am not giving up on that. But yeah. It is, it's a different damn world. (laughs) Elena, you had your class do a really interesting project that I'd love Mm. for you to mention. Oh, okay. So my act, my fundamentals of acting class became an acting for the camera class pretty fast, right? And it's a non-majors, you know, I had a seminarian, I had uh, nurses. And so we went through this whole process and it was a great opportunity to think of like, External, we were doing a lot of Michael Chekhov. So now we're gonna do a little bit different. We're gonna do very like finding your internal acting, right? Like where are you and the character meet? So what we ended up doing is I gave them a writing assignment and I said, okay, I want you to write about the new normal, even though that became like, everyone was saying that, that was became a buzzworthy kind of uh, phrase. And I was like, I want you to write about new normal, but you can't say COVID and you can't say mask and you can't say flu and you can't say sick. Or I gave them a whole list. So they wrote about, and I'm like, don't be profound, don't be deep, or whatever you think that means. Just be honest, like what you honestly do in a day. And um, so then they took these little pieces and then they gave them to each other to work on, like it was a, a piece that they got from a book or a play. Um, and so what I found in all of these pieces was they all had almost like a mask dropping moment mm-hmm. of like, I go through the day and this is what I do and oh my God, it's so hard. but this is what I do and da, 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 da. And they all did it. And it was so beautiful to watch these students who don't think of themselves as actors, some of them, and some of them do, and they are, but I I kept telling them like, you're at, you're acting, you're an actor. You're telling stories. You're an actor. Boom. It happened. Way to go. Um, And watching them come to terms with this idea of new normal and come to terms and hearing words like very feminine intended words coming out of a very masculine mouth and how that changes and how perception changes. Um, I, I think theater personally, I think, you know, we've really been getting more collaborative and, and kind of less top down in our theater yeah. structure, more feminist and less colonialist. And I, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that, that this shows us that that's how collaboration can really work for us, but I'm not a writer. And I always feel bad if I say anything to people who are writers, like, yeah, we just wrote a play. It was fine. (laughs) It just feels so awful. So, um, but that's great. That sounds incredible. Sounds incredible. I mean, theater's about trying to find the truth. And it sounds like that's exactly what that was after. Even the smallest little kernel of truth is a thing where a lot of people will go, I see that. I recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Zach, you are now a playwright because I'm calling you that. Zach, Look the playwright. That. Are Look you Zach that. the playwright? Hey, you're Whoa. that playwright. You haven't read it yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Thank I mean, you. I know so that I'm going to be the play. sound by now, right? I'm like, going to embrace it. Lauren Gunderson said I'm a playwright. <laughs> I'm a playwright, damn it. Thank you. <laughs> On your <John>. CV. <laughs> That's Thank right. you. That's right. Take the note. I'm taking <laughs> it. I'm taking it. Take Thank you. Note. Um, I do want to, we're, we're coming up on about an hour here. So um, I know we have some questions in the comments. Great. Uh, I want to make sure we get to those. Nicole, sure. do you want to 
jump on those? Yes, uh, we do have a couple. Um, the first, uh, Hannah, Hannah Richardson, who was in Silent Sky when mm. we did it here. Uh, do you have any tips on getting a piece published for mm. maybe an aspiring playwright? Yeah, um, I would say don't focus on publishing, focus on production, because that's the order in which it comes. Workshops, development, mm. production. And then the production is basically one of the many things it is, is a proof of concept. So it shows that people want to produce the play, which is why they would want to publish it so other people would. So focus on the productions, sending it to contests, awards, developmental institutions, um, and premieres. Good advice. Uh, Judy Stowe asked, who's also in Silent Sky as well, is watching. Hi, Judy. Um, how do you decide what side stories to include? For example, in Silent Sky, there was Hannah's, obviously, but also Peter's wanting to be an actor and ending up where he did, and Margaret with her dream of composing, and Wilmina's relationship with Annie. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you have to have, um, uh, everyone's got a want. Everyone's got a dream in the show. Um, and it's kind of where those converge um, that are going to help that main character, in this case, Henrietta, um, be challenged. Um, the, the side characters are there, structurally at least, to force the main character into making their character-defining decisions and choices. So, you know, Margaret's dream of composing is part of when she reveals that um, it prompts Henrietta to be really rude to her and dismissive and like, wow, so like you get a dream, but I don't is, you know, so that exposes a little bit of her um, kind of selfish ambition. Mm -hmm. um, Hen, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, everyone's kind of role, the idea that like, why does he want to be an actor yet he's here? It exposes that he's part of a lineage of men who get the job for the next man in the family, who get the job for the next man, that he didn't have to prove himself like she did. So that again mm. exposes a reality um, that's there. So all of these side stories and side characters are there to, to push, push the main character, um, to expose who they really are, make them make choices that show us who they are, and tell us more about the world and kind of the context in, in which we're in. And also be funny and also all that. <laughs> I mean, William Mina is just like a delight. So every time she's on stage, it's like, oh, good. She's that's back. the part that Judy played who asked the Yay! question. So <laughs> direct hit. Yeah. Um, I, if I can ask, just kind of coming off of that, I know in, in a couple of your um, Facebook Live videos, you've talked about monologues. Mm. Um, and, and the, I think I'll let you say, I think you call them what the easiest thing to write, but the, the hardest, hardest thing to, to justify. justify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. So yeah. when, when does a monologue belong and when doesn't a monologue belong? It's all about urgency. Like what is the monologue doing? What is the, the speaker, what do they want by the end of it? And as long as they want something that they are actively trying to get, they're not telling you that their dream from last night because it was cool. They're telling you the dream because they're really telling you that they love you or they really are telling you that they might have killed someone in their past and are trying to confess. Or, I mean, whatever. There's like, you can, you know, you're not telling a memory. It has to be active in the present. So any monologue is, I, you try to, th I try to think of it in terms of verbs. Like what are the verbs going on in the monologue? What are they confessing? What are they admitting? What are they defining? What are they professing? Um, what are they trying to get? So at the end, do they want the person they're talking to or the people they're talking to, to applaud, to smack them in the face, to give them a kiss, to say, yes, I do, to say, you know, whatever. Um, so as long as it's active, it belongs, but it's very easy to go, you know, when I was a boy, <laughs> then you're like, oh. oh. <laughs> right? oh. <laughs> and I think it came up in your conversation with David Ball, um, talking yeah. about backwards and forwards, 
um, which by the way, another great video, please go watch every That's single fine. video if you haven't watched. Watch them all. Um, but he talked about, you know, maybe you do write in that example you just gave about the really vivid dream the character had last night because it helps you as the writer explore the character and then you delete it or, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be in the play just yeah. because it helps you, the author, get a better understanding of that character. And there's a very critical example of this when I'm, again, I'm talking about a lot of musicals, but um, oftentimes when we don't quite know what a song is about or a character is doing, I'll just write a big old monologue for, for them, just kind of blah, 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 here is a thing, and here's what I want, and here's what I feel, here's what I'm scared of, and here's why I love this person, and then knowing that that will never be seen beyond that Google Doc, um, because the lyricist and composer are gonna take that, turn a song into it. Maybe it's just one line, maybe it's one word and that whole thing that's like, ah, roses. Okay, okay, okay. Mm. The song is called Roses and it's about this. And uh, <laughs> you know, So that's a very literal example. And this is part of the advice of playwriting is get used to cutting and <laughs> get used to being like, that was a good idea, goodbye. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's that's part of it is kind of the, the give and take of what what's, it's a large scale version of whoever has the best idea in the room you know, wins the day and makes makes the moment, so. I love that. Any other questions from Facebook, Nicole, or we got- uh, I believe so. I think we have one more uh, from Nicole. Per the revolutionists, how did the idea come about and how did you decide which historical women to include versus fictional? Mm, I love that play. That's actually one of those kind of wild ones that, anyway, um, yes, thank you for the question. Um, so uh, for those who don't know, the revolutionists is said the French Revolution, uh, 1793, right when things were getting very scary and very violent. Um, and I wrote this a couple years ago. It premiered um, probably four years ago um, and has been done a bunch, certainly once um, 2016 happened uh, and, and a lot now. But it's um, about, unsurprisingly, Marie Antoinette. She's the kind of most famous one and who's on all the posters because everyone knows who she is. Um, there is Charlotte Corday is one of the characters, Charlotte Corday infamously slash famously killed uh, Jean-Paul Marat, who was one of the really radical um, politicians and, and newspaper writers at the time. So she just like stabbed him in his bathtub because he, she blamed him for the slaughter of a lot of her, her village, um, just with his words, just with his inciting words. And then, but the hero of the play is, uh, the main character is Alain de Gouge, who was a real pl playwright and feminist activist at the time, which I had no idea about until going to France and discovering in kind of the footnotes of a Wikipedia article <laughs> um, who she was. And I was like, sorry, there was a, a feminist playwright during the revolution? Wait a minute. <laughs> so that of course set my mind spinning. Um, and the tone is actually very modern. Like they curse, they, you know, Marie Antoinette actually has weird premonitions about the future and like cell phones and things. And like, <laughs> she doesn't quite have the language for it, but it's this odd kind of way to shatter myths and um, to kind of take what we would presume about all people and shift it. But somebody as famous as Marie Antoinette, there's a lot to kind of go, oh, I did not expect Marie Antoinette to be the profound thinker of this moment. Um, and then um, the kind of most, uh, the 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 most research I did was actually about the character of um, of Marianne because she is a fictional kind of um, combination of several black women who uh, were revolutionaries and activists at that time because France was of course a slave owning um, uh, country that uh, they owned what is now Haiti um, they called it Saint Domingue and so the Haitian Revolution the Saint Domingue Revolution was happening at that exact same time that the French, i.e. the white people, were revolting for the same rights. So it was this very interesting combination. And of course, slaves were treated much, much, much worse. And 
all of the inequality there, but there's a lot of women who um, had uh, major roles, but of course history does what it does and, and kind of erases them um, or defines them only by their husbands or their sons and things like that. So she is a, based on a couple of real women, but, but given um, more breadth because uh, she, she's the most fictionalized of, of all of them. So it's about these four women and kind of confronting a time of great crisis and what do you do with your mind, with your talent? Are you too scared to do anything? Are is the fact that you're not scared going to get you killed? Is you know wh what what do we do? What does art matter in a time of crisis? And it certainly I've been thinking a lot about that now. Who are some Thank of your you. favorite playwrights? Mm, okay, the list is long. Um, Lynn Nottage, uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury, Paula Vogel, Sarah Rule. Mm. Um, I'm a big, uh, oh God, there's so many. Um, Dominique Morso, Antoinette Wandu. Um, uh, 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 let's see, Larissa Fasthorse, her Thanksgiving plays hilarious and amazing. Um, ooh, this is such a fun game. There's so <laughs> many. She's a Hutchinson, um, Mathari Shekhar, Ari uh, 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 Pmatmat. Um, Oh God, there's just, it's endless. This is endless. Steve Yaki. I oh, asked oof. for completely selfish purposes. You just gave me a very long reading list. That's all Indeed. I really wanted. Look, I will, I'm happy to play that game forever. Great, great. thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. Well, I, I could keep going for hours, but that probably would not be polite. So um, Nicole, Elena, do you have any final questions? No, just thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for taking You're the so time. Welcome. Yeah, is I, there anything else that you want to address that we haven't gotten to? Or I just love the work that y'all do. Thank you for doing it. And um, anytime you make theater, you're doing it like a brave and important thing. So thanks for that. Mm. And um, let's stay in touch. We're friends now. Mm. Let's just Yay. keep talking. Um, yeah. We're friends and I'm a playwright. This is like one of the best nights of my life. Stay <laughs> ever. I was going to say, <laughs> we're never going to hear the end of this, Lauren, when oh, we started God. here with Zach. So. <laughs> Planted a seed. Here we go. Get Show bear. Get ready. Strange um, fruit. Well, thanks for having the conversation and for um, doing the work to make theater, the new, the new theater, to be diverse and inclusive and affirming and feminist and creative and necessary. So thanks, y'all. Thank you. We're lucky. We're lucky to get to be a part of it and to be a part of it with you. So thank you again so much. Uh, for being here for all the work you do and for inspiring us too. I feel like now I have a whole list of things that I want to go do right now because I feel inspired and ready to make changes happen. But hopefully, thanks for some hope. It's nice to hear hope today. Yeah. You know? Good. Good Let's day take for that hope. hope and change do the world. It. My little. Yep. Well, for those of you listening to, I hope you have that hope too. Thank you. Um, you can listen to Lauren's play, uh, The Half-Life of Mary Curie on Audible. You can find her other works on PlayScript, uh, Dramatist Play Service, and Samuel French. And her book, Dr. Wonderful, Blast Off to the Moon, is available on Amazon too. Uh, thank you so much to Elena Manchester, Zach Flock, Shop Talk. This is the official Drama Shop podcast. Um, we are also sponsored by Gannon University Schuster Theater and available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, of course, dramashop.org. Uh, Shop Talk is produced by me, Nicole Lossie. Thank you all so much for listening and for supporting Drama Shop Theater in Process. Mm -hmm.